Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, November 1st. We begin with a look at the COP26 meetings now underway in Europe. We speak with Redmond Shannon, Global News Europe correspondent, on the key climate targets being set by world leaders and hear about the limited participation of the summit by both China and Russia. It's officially November, or as it's now been deemed, Movember, in recognition of men's health issues. With the kickoff of this special month, we take the opportunity to hear the personal story of a testicular cancer survivor who just happens to be the producer of Mornings with Sue and Andy. His name is Reese Schaefer. We'll hear his story. Could Canada be at risk for a damaging solar storm? We discuss the topic with a scientist from the Canadian Hazard Information Service and get details on what stargazers can expect from this, the busy season for solar activity. And finally, it's our weekly segment aimed at helping you live your best life. This week on Motivational Monday, we meet professor, author, and therapist Laura Berg. Laura tells us about her new book, Thriving Life, How to Live Your Best Life No Matter the Cards You're Dealt. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Glasgow for the COP26 meeting with world leaders to address the climate crisis. Joining us now from Europe is Redmond Shannon with the Global News Bureau there. Good morning to you, Redmond. Good morning. What are the main goals that have been laid out for COP26? Well, there are quite a few, and I think the, it's going to be uh, difficult to see all of them being reached and what them being reached uh, is how that's defined is is another question too but some of the big things that they're going to be looking at over the coming two weeks will be to uh, establish a, a mechanism and details for exactly how countries get to uh, so-called net zero in terms of when countries will be able to, to do that. Now, the goal for many of the main industrial na- industrialized nations has been around 2050. And at the G20 Leaders Summit in Rome over the weekend, there, was, uh, there were plans among many countries, including Canada and the UK, which is hosting COP26, to lay down 2050 as a goal for everyone to get to that net zero goal. That has been softened to mid-century. So if someone's in their mid-40s, what age are they? Who knows? Mm-hmm. But it's, it's that sort of language is softening. When is, tw- when is that going to happen? Russia and China perhaps are the main players influencing that. They want to push that goal out to 2060 for net zero. And that's part of the reason that that was changed. Other um, issues that will be coming up will be coal, the use of coal for power plants. China is a huge user of coal for industry and uh, the goal of uh, removing coal-fired power plants um, in the 2030s, again, that language at the G20 Leaders Summit before this COP26, that was pushed out to as soon as possible. Again, what does that mean? So that softening of the language is a sign that it's going to be really difficult, of course, to get 200 nations from around the world to agree on doing the same things at the same time. Another big issue that still has been left over from the Paris Agreement six years ago is carbon trading, uh, the so-called Article 6 within the agreement. In other words, if countries don't reach their goals of reducing emissions, can they trade carbon credits between them in order to make it balance out and make sure that there isn't double accounting? 
We have issues again on top of this of deforestation and reforestation in places like Brazil. How will that happen? When will that happen? When will countries move to electronic vehicles? When will that really be pushed? So all of these questions need to be answered. On top of that as well, how will poorer countries be helped? How much money is there? When will that money be? Uh, and how will that money be distributed to poorer countries to help them get to a place of renewable energy, of course, because the carbon that's in our atmosphere, the blame for that really does lie with Europe and North America, the uh, traditional industrialized nations, not with the poorer countries. So it's about the richer countries helping the poorer countries. And where does that fairness and balance lie in terms of helping them along? So many things to address over the coming two weeks. And Redmond, you talk about China and being one of the worst offenders, particularly when it comes to coal, and yet they're not involved in COP26. Are they not invited? Do they just not come? Why is China not involved in this process? Well, China will be involved. It's just President uh, uh, Xi from China won't be present. So okay. China's very much will be taking part with delegates, delegates from pretty much every country. And the same goes for Russia. Russia won't, uh, President Putin won't be in Glasgow either. Now, they, th- whether that makes a difference on how much can be agreed, well, perhaps it is. If you get to leaders in a room together or a number of leaders in a room together, it's much easier to get something agreed than passing it down the line over and back, especially with time zones and whatnot. That's a big thing. But remember, when we say China is the biggest emitter, it very much is, but uh, and is the biggest emitter um, in total terms worldwide. But per capita, Canada is a much bigger emitter than China. And historically, the emissions have come from North America and from Europe. The carbon that's in our atmosphere is mostly from the Western nations. So that's what China often points the finger and says, well, you know, we're, we were catching up and now it's going to take more for us to, to get back and, and to change our economy too. So it's a lot about fairness, who takes the blame, who pays for this and how is it paid for and when. And, you know, can we point to any role specifically that Canada will have at this uh, summit? And uh, can we really have much of an influence? You mentioned, you know, as far as our impact per capita, but we're relatively, when you talk about this many nations coming together, a small, a small group, a small nation. Yeah, exactly. And, but I think, uh, nonetheless, uh, Canada's got about 2%, and, and that's not insignificant of global greenhouse gas emissions as we stand right now. But Canada is often looked to by countries around the world as uh, sort of a a moral leader in a way, a, a country that other countries look to, whereas, you know, the United States has a complicated relationship and the European Union and perhaps the UK and France for colonial reasons have complicated relationship with certain countries. Canada can have can sit aside, outside that a little bit. And if Canada, as one of the highest emitters per capita, can make extra commitments and will make extra commitments will perhaps that will be uh, a leadership role that other countries will look to so every country is uh, without with some exceptions the u.s and china being the main exceptions every country can say it's just a small piece of the puzzle but if you add them all up uh you know you you have a huge problem and it's uh, perhaps uh justin trudeau will be looking to uh when he speaks today and addresses delegates to perhaps show some leadership uh, in terms of uh, goals and whether or not we hear new goals announced today from Canada and from other countries, well, that will make a big difference over the coming two weeks as to the direction COP26 goes in. Thank you for the update and thanks for your time this morning, Redmond. Appreciate it.
Thanks, guys. Have a great day. You Bye. too. Redmond Shannon, Global's Europe correspondent. I guess we'll see. Is this more, you know, uh, top leaders jetting around to, to tell us what we're doing incorrectly and setting goals that, you know, obviously I think that we all want to do our part, but important goals, walking that lofty. line. Yeah. And walking that line, as far as we're seeing the price of energy sky high, as far as our, you know, price at the pumps and, and what we're paying for, for natural gas to heat our homes. Obviously, well, what what's the alternative? Is it is it there yet? What will that cost? So many questions. So, guess we'll see how things play out. Another uh, slight controversy <laughs> was, uh, you Oops. know, are we falling back? And should we have not fallen back on Saturday night? We've started to get some texts coming in early this morning yeah. saying, I don't know what's going on here because you guys seem to be an hour early on the air this morning, which we are not. Believe me, you and I would never get here on time for something like that. No, certainly not. But it sounds like Bell customers on their iPhones, Bell triggered the uh, daylight saving time end a week early. So if you're seeing the clock is kind of wonky and it looks like the time is off on your phone, you're not losing your mind. You must be a Bell client. Obviously, we did not fall back this pat this weekend. It is this coming weekend for the time change, but you may be a little off uh, as you look at your uh, your phone. If that if you depend on your phone for your alarm and your as a watch, it's kind of a deal. Which a lot of people do these days. Yeah. It really uh, it may be throwing you off. So it's just almost seven seventeen now on yeah. your Monday morning. So check your time on your phone. And the one texter was uh, you know blaming their iPhone, but you and I have iPhones and we had no issues. Yeah. So we didn't. It's uh, your pursue. service provider. Yeah, Brenda Newfeld brought it in the news to us that it was uh, yeah, the Bell thing. So Oops. Keep that in mind, and uh, we'll be uh, flipping back and falling back next Sunday at 2 a.m. What a stat. One in 250 men will be diagnosed with testicular cancer in their lives. And as Movember kicks off today, November 1st, we're joined this morning by the producer of our morning show, Mornings with Sue and Andy, and testicular cancer survivor, Reese Schaefer. Good morning, Reese. Good morning, Sue. Good morning, Andy. Hey, thanks for joining us. You know, and I, I love the fact that you are very open and honest about this, and you've really become an advocate. You had testicular cancer. So tell us a little bit to begin, what are some of the warning signs? What made you start to get concerned? Well, warning signs, um, misshapen testicle. And the larger ones are pretty common. You can have a larger testicle, one or the other. Sometimes one hangs lower than the other. These are pretty normal. And that was kind of the thing that first got me concerned. I thought my left testicle is too large. It's something's wrong here. So I went and saw my doctor and he said, no, 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 that's normal. A lot of people have larger testicles than one larger than the other. But I wasn't really convinced. I really felt that there was something wrong. So I ended up making um, an appointment with my urologist. I went and got a second opinion. He felt it and he went, okay, there's something. Something needs to be checked out here. Got an ultrasound, I think the next day. And then I was admitted to hospital that very same day. Wow. Wow. The ultrasound, the technician came in, took a look and said, yeah, that's pretty concerning. You should probably just go to the hospital. And that was basically it. I think from the time that I got concerned, had my appointment with my urologist, three days later, I was down to one testicle. Wow, that's In, that's fast. It speaks yeah. to the medical system. And we could also do a whole other segment on uh, self-advocacy. For sure. Self-diagnosis and being uh, you know aware enough to check and not just that, uh, but to continue being proactive for your health which a lot of men don't do. Again, that could be a whole a different segment. But I want to get back to it because you did this work. You found out what goes through your mind mentally when they say cancer. Like, how, how did that shift or, or did it, what effect did it have on, had on you? I thought I'd be okay. I 
tried to go home. I tried to drive myself home after I got the news, and I had to pull over to the side of the road because I started crying. Like you never expect that this is going to happen to you. You know, everyone has experiences with cancer in their family, but when it actually hits you, it's really, really challenging to to tackle, to handle. And I went to a lot of like therapy, different things like that, and tried to. You have to talk about it. You have to have these difficult conversations because I feel a lot of men kind of bottle it up a little bit too much and we're not really willing to open up and talk about those things that are maybe concerning us, maybe as much as some women are, you know, maybe more open talking about different health concerns that they may have. And we really need to change that narrative. I agree. And that's why I I think it's really important that people like you talk about it and talk about it like it's no big deal. We can talk about, you know, a misshapen testicle because that's reality. And I think you're right. Women, we just go get our regular test done. It's just something that most women do. And I think guys are, are just more afraid of it. And it's kind of, I don't know, a bit of a stigma around it for some reason still. Yeah, I think there is kind of a stigma around wanting to talk about your private parts, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Maybe even that's a, a ch- uh, the wrong term to use, private parts. This shouldn't be They're private. Not, yeah. We should be talking about sense. these kind of things. Yes, yeah, so we should need to talk about it because when we stay silent, we ignore those warning signs like a lump or your scrotum feeling heavy or a pain in the testicle. That was something that I got. I got a sharp pain in my testicle and I thought, oh, that's probably nothing. You know, like any sort of muscle muscle. Walk twinge. it off, race. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, just shake it off. If it's not broken or bleeding, you know, skate off the ice. Yeah. Exactly. But that's the way we've been. I want to talk to you that, that stat that Sue kicked things off with. One in 250 men will be diagnosed with testicular cancer in their lives. Uh, so let's dig deeper into that. We've got that stat. What is the survival rate if caught? And is this something, a cancer that's spreadable? It is. It can spread. Um, another one of the warning signs is pain in the lower back because there's lymph nodes in our lower back. And that's the first place that your can- testicular cancer could spread to. So if you're having severe back pain, that can also be a warning sign mm. for testicular cancer. But good news, testicular cancer is one of the more treatable forms of cancer. 100% of people that don't get treated, though, will die from it. So, I mean, we have to talk so it about a killer. this. It will kill you, absolutely. If you just say, oh, okay, no, it's just maybe my one, my one testicle is bigger than the other. Everything's fine. All these warning signs, I'm just going to keep ignoring it. Or they don't want to go through treatment. That can be a death sentence. So you are your own advocate. You stepped up. You knew something was wrong. And I think we all know our bodies mm-hmm. pretty well enough by the time we get to that adult stage. It's just a matter of following through and, and saying, listen, doctor, I don't agree with you and I want somebody else to look at it. So how do you perform a self-check to even get to the point where maybe you can take, go to the doctor and say, there's something wrong here? Well, to start off, you, you kind of have to get to know your testicles to a certain extent. You have to be able to tell when things are changing. I feel like you guys are pretty good with that. You know, we do have our hands down our pants maybe too often, but in this case, it could be a very positive thing. (laughs) Fair fair enough. (laughs) But when you're in the shower, that's the best time to do a self-check. You know, um, your scrotum's relaxed. You can actually separate your testicles one at a time, roll them between your your thumb and forefinger, see if there's any lumps, any normalities. Everything should be kind of smooth, even, egg-shaped, and, you know, Perform that again for each testicle. And if there's anything that's changing or concerning for you, go straight to the doctor. Don't hesitate. Well, we're going to have to have you on again because we've got the whole month of Mov- I mean, November ahead <laughs> of us. And your appearance has changed, Reese. But, you know, some of the tidbits you were telling us off mic is the different things you can do besides growing that stash to support Movember. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to have you on again over the next couple of weeks here for sure. It's not Absolutely. just growing a mustache, no, right? No, no, but I love my cookie duster. Yeah, it well, looks good. It's yeah. pretty good so far. I'm going to not shave my legs for a month in honor of all of you guys. <laughs>
Planet Earth is about to enter its busy season for solar activity. And what's being referred to as an epic solar storm may be heading our way. What kind of damage could that cause and should we be worried? We're finding out more from research scientist at the Canadian Hazard Information Service, Dr. Robin Fiore. Good morning to you, Dr. Fiore. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for taking the time. Well, before we talk about the worst case scenario, what might we normally see from a solar storm? So a solar storm is, is activity on the sun that's causing energy and particles and radiation to be emitted. And these will travel out from outward from the Earth. And this happens on a normal everyday basis. We call this the solar wind. But then we can also have these spectacular explosions called a coronal mass ejection where we get this extra boost of particles. We're talking about billions of tons of particles coming towards the Earth. Coronal mass. Oh, I love it. It sounds really it, almost like it should be a movie. So is it... Very dramatic, yes. <laughs> is, it, is it that dramatic? What would a worst-case scenario look like? Um, well, we often refer to this one-in-100-year event where we would have a major coronal mass ejection that would put a large explosion of particles towards the Earth while the explosion site was facing the Earth so that we'd have full impact. And this kind of event would take maybe a day to reach the Earth. A slower event could take up to three days. And then when it arrives, we'll see um, different distributions of currents and particles in the atmosphere. Uh, we would see perturbations in our magnetic field, and that's kind of fancy scientists speak. But what that really comes down to is being able to see the northern lights. Uh, in places maybe where we haven't seen them. But we can also see um, interference with systems um, in, that, that are relying on the atmosphere. So, for example, if our atmosphere is suddenly thick with these particles, it's harder to transmit signals through them. So that would affect things like satellites used for GNSS, um, also communications used by the aviation industry. Uh, it's called high-frequency radio communication. But we can also have currents induced in any kind of long conductor like the power system. So we could have fluctuations in the power systems. And there's actually a really good um, event that we like to touch back on in Canada. It was a March 1989 storm which caused Hydro-Quebec uh, to lose power across the, uh, across the province, sorry, and even into the northern uh, United States as well for quite a few hours and it affected the entire province. That was the next question is in history, can we see how it affected our country? But that's a great example there. Moving ahead, you mentioned that event over 30 years ago. Are we prepared in 2021? Have we stepped up our preparations and or what can we do? Yeah, I think Canada is extremely prepared. Our location means that we're underneath the auroral oval, which means we have a really good chance of seeing the aurora, but we also have uh, a really good chance of being impacted. And we're one of the countries that's most vulnerable to the effects of this kind of solar activity. But this also means that we're in the best position for observing it. So Canadian universities are at the forefront of solar terrestrial science. Um, using Canada as a monitoring platform. And this includes ground-based instruments, rocket-based and satellite instruments that are looking down at the Earth, but also out at the sun, uh, so that we can uh, do research uh, in order to mitigate the effects of solar activity and space weather. And, of course, we also have federal government departments involved in that, too, including NRCAN's Canadian Hazards Information Service, but also the Canadian Space Agency uh, and the National Research Council as well. Should we, Robin, as citizens, be watching for anything? Can we see anything or look for anything particularly in the sky? Yeah, the best thing that you can see is the northern lights. If you're in a place that doesn't normally see the northern lights, you're more likely to see it. 
uh, if you're in a southward location, uh, when there's a big event. Uh, but that's really all that we're going to see. Good stuff. Thanks for the information. We appreciate it. Perfect. Thanks so much. Dr. Robin Fiore, scientist at the Canadian Hazard Information Service. Eyes to the sky, Sue. Laura Berg is a professor, author, and a trained therapist. Her latest book is titled Thriving Life, How to Live Your Best Life No Matter the Cards You're Dealt. And she joins us now on Motivational Monday. Good morning to you, Laura. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Your new book has a very interesting title, and it's a great fit for Motivational Monday. So tell us, what was your inspiration in writing this one? Well, I just have had a lot of experiences in life that haven't necessarily been very positive. And all of the experiences that I've had are pretty common in other people's lives. And so I wanted to share what I experienced and then how I overcame those experiences that other people can maybe learn from what I did. I love that, Laura, because let's face it, we've all had experiences that were not so positive, but most times you see and you hear, oh, life is so great and everything is so happy for everybody and we should all just be like that. And that's not reality. So give it to us a little bit of the background of, you know, kind of what happened to you and how you've managed to to find a way to pull forward and, and be positive about it moving on. Oh, it's such a long story to be honest with you. But, you know, I've experienced things like I grew up in a very abusive household. Uh, so I lived my life uh, in the victim mentality a lot, which was hurting myself. And I think a lot of us go through that. And then that affects my self-esteem and how I view others and the relationships I have with others. And it sort of like bleeds over into other areas of my life. And... I wasn't being successful because of I was holding myself back. Mm. And so I really talk about how to stop doing that and continuing to harm yourself. You know, uh, it's hard to unpack an entire book and and a whole philosophy (laughs) and and where you come from, but you've been uh, kind enough to give us a few tips when it comes to getting on track, reaching those goals, or maybe even just starting starting your goal set and and getting things going. Uh, So let's start with uh, tip number one that you have for our listeners. So the first tip I would say, and and of course, my book doesn't just deal with people who have been abused. That's just one blip of something I had to deal with. But I think one of my tips is to define what makes you happy in life. And so a lot of us go through life thinking that X, Y, and Z will make us happy because that's what our parents have told us. So that's what society has told us. But that's not really what will make us happy. So I think we need to take a moment, sit down and think about what brings you joy in life and then go after those things. You know, start, stop thinking about what our parents want us to do and what we actually want to do. Can you give us one example maybe? Because the first thing that pops into my head is chocolate, but I don't know that <laughs> that should be my, my goal in life. It it's probably, be. it could be maybe a version thereof. You know, it could be as simple as that. Maybe your parents said you can't have chocolate. Um, for me personally, it is travel. Travel brings me joy in life. I absolutely love it. And so I have um, built my life around the ability to be able to travel. So, you know, my job allows me to travel a lot. Uh, I take time to make sure that I do travel and I don't feel guilty about it. You know, my husband will stay at home with the kids so I can travel by myself. I'll travel with each individual child of mine. Um, So that's just a goal that I have. I have a friend who doesn't want kids. She loves my kids, but she doesn't want kids. Mm -hmm. And so you have to figure out, you know, she doesn't want to own a house because she doesn't want the stress of having to maintain it. Uh, so it's as simple as that, okay. you know, figuring out what will bring you joy. 
and super individual because it, it will vary mm-hmm. person to person for sure. Let's go to tip number two. What is it? So it's, if you do nothing, nothing happens. I love that quote. My husband told that to me a long, long time ago, and it really resonated with me because so many of us want to do things. We want to set goals, make plans, but we over plan and we don't take action. We don't take the first step that we need to take mm-hmm. in order to make that happen. So if you think about it, that's very impactful. If you don't do anything, nothing's going to happen for you. I think that's brilliant, and I like how you said it too. That you know, it could be a small thing because I think sometimes that's we get it in our heads that we should, you know, make these lofty goals, and if they're too big, they're tough to achieve. Exactly, and funnily enough, that leads me into my third tip, which is breaking overwhelming goals into smaller, more manageable steps. So you might have this really big goal. Like for me, I I wanted to write this book, but I didn't feel that I had the credentials to be able, like the expertise to give advice. And so I went back to school to become a therapist, but I also teach. I'm a professor and I don't have a lot of time to allocate to quitting my job and going back to school. And so I just took one course at a time. And it took me three years, but I didn't think of it as a massive project. I thought of it as one course. Then I completed that course, another course. So breaking things into smaller, more manageable chunks will make it more attainable. Laura, I'm wondering, as I look back at your points and look at point number one, uh, you know, what makes you happy in life, defining that and then building your goal around that. I'm wondering if you think that in the past 20 months or so during the pandemic, that may have changed for people. They may have had a different focus or a different path toward what make them happy. Have you seen that in your practice? I really have. And I think that a lot of people realize that they can do things that they didn't think that they could because they didn't have time or resources or the ability. Um, and I think that, you know, this online world has opened up a lot of doors for mm-hmm. people who may have felt intimidated by that. And maybe, yeah, going to school, doing a course, you know, just finding the thing that you love and doing it as a side gig to keep you happy and, and to, you know, it's something that you love, make you happy inside and out. And maybe it turns into something further down the road. You're right. It's opened up a world of, of opportunities for us, hasn't it? It really has. And with schools, a lot of uh, post-secondary schools have put their programs online and they're continuing to offer a section, at least, of their programs in an online world. So I think it's really made it more attainable for people who couldn't necessarily take time out of their lives to just quit and go back to school. Mm-hmm. Just before we let you go, Laura, who should pick up Thriving Life, How to Live Your Best Life, no matter the cards you're dealt, your, your new book? Who, who should uh, check this out? I really geared it towards anybody who feels that they're struggling. You know, I, a lot of my life, I felt like I was just surviving. I just you know, day by day, in and out, feeling drained, not feeling happy, that finally I decided one day, no, I want to live a thriving life. I want to be happy. I want to have good relationships with people. So anybody who has that feeling where they're just surviving in life, I think would benefit because in my book, I have a lot of tips that I give people, actionable tips that they can take that can improve relationships, improve their own mental health and self-esteem. If you do nothing, nothing happens. It's a great quote. Looking forward to reading your book. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. Appreciate your time. 
Thank you for having me. Laura Berg is a professor, author, and therapist. You can go to hcibooks.com to order, and she's online at Laura Berg Life. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.